Well, welcome everybody to week three. So um, we've been looking at covenant theology for the past two weeks. We'll hit week three today and then week four tomorrow. Um, if you've missed any of them, all of these are on. There's a YouTube playlist on our channel. You can, you can get it on our website too. Um, but as we start, um, if you turn to the back, the last page or something like that in each handout has really just the summary of all four weeks. And so I'm going to start there and recap weeks one and two, and then we'll, we'll jump into this week. Uh, but week one, right, we saw that covenant theology is the gospel. It's set in the context of God's eternal plan of communion with his people, and then it's historical outworkings in the covenants of works and grace. Um, right, we saw that the Emmanuel principle, right, that God says, I will be with you, I will be your God, and you will be my people, that that's really the heartbeat of covenant theology. That's what God is doing in his covenants, in his covenantal relationships. Uh, last week, we looked at that, that eternal background, right? The, the, the covenant between the members of the Trinity, that's the covenant of redemption, where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit decree together to rescue a people to themselves, right? right that, that's God's eternal decree. And then we, we looked at the covenant of works, Right, And this is the covenant that God established with Adam and with all people in Adam, in the garden, that he said, if you obey, you will receive eternal life. If you disobey, you will receive death. And so that, that need for perfect obedience is set forth from the very beginning. And then what, one of the things we saw last week is that, that idea of the covenant of works, it doesn't cease. Right? It doesn't, it's not that Adam failed it and, okay, we'll move on. The covenant of works actually continues to be in play, and we're going to come back to that today. Um, so today we're going to look at the covenant of grace. But let me pray uh, as we get started. Father, we give you thanks. Uh, you are our covenant God, and Lord, it's of your initiative that we are in relationship with you. It's of your initiative that we exist, and um, so we give you thanks for that. Lord, bless us today that we would understand that we would grow in our knowledge of what you have given us in your word. But Father, would you also grow our faith, our, our love, our hope based upon the truth that you set forth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So a couple of preliminaries before we jump into the covenant of grace. Um, I've told you all week by week, email me or come, come ask me as you have questions. For those walking in, there are notes for this week up at the front that, that Bill's getting right now. So raise your hand and Bill can get those to you. Um, but I just could reiterate that to you. If you have questions, um, do email me or come find me after this. And uh, I'd love to hear the things that you want to know more about. Um, one of the things I was asked after last week's is kind of along the lines of what do we do with the old Testament, the old covenant? It, it, does it continue to be in a force or do we throw it out? And, um, there's, there's kind of multiple pieces of, of an answer to that. And basically as we, last week's was part of that, this week's is part of that, next week's is part of that. But one of the things I'll say, um, at this point is that last week we talked about that the covenant of works continues to be enforced, right? God's requirement of obedience continues to be. And so that's one of the things that, that really remains the same, uh, from Old Testament, New Testament. God requires perfect obedience. Um, and apart from perfect obedience, we're, going to receive eternal death. Like that, that, that idea is the same. Um, now there's some things that we'll get into, begin to touch on today and then get into next week. Um, where especially if you read Hebrews, um, or even if you read Galatians, you'll see that Paul and then the writer of Hebrews, like there's a contrast that they give with the new covenant and the old covenant. Um, especially in Hebrews, he talks about like the Mosaic code is obsolete. It's passing away. 
that kind of thing. And so we're going to begin to touch on that today and next week. But there are some things, I guess what I want you to begin to see is that there's some things that remain true across all of it, but then there's some things that, that do change. And so the, it, as we talk this week and next week, that will help us think through what do we do with the Old Testament, help us understand that a little bit more. Um, the other thing I'll say by, as a preliminary is um, a thanks, and I think, I think I have this at the back of the notes, but Ligon Duncan, um, a lot of his material shapes my teaching of this, and also Davis Morgan. I don't, does it, who knows Davis Morgan in here? There's a handful. Yeah. So he was the former RUF minister here until, I don't know, four years ago, something like that. Um, but he, he has taught a class on covenant theology, and I've used his material quite a bit as well. So I just want to give credit where credit is due. Um, and then the final thing is if you go on our website, um, I've mentioned this, there are different appendices uh, to this material on our website under the resources and then Sunday courses tab. And uh, one of those that I've added there, I think last week, is one about the catechisms. And so um, as you're learning about covenant theology, you can begin to actually think about where does this show up in the catechisms? Um, and so you can go on there, and I just put a quick sheet together. It's not perfect, but it at least gives you some basic things of what are some of the, the catechism questions and answers that deal with covenant theology. One of the reasons I thought of that is it just kind of so happens that a section of the kids' catechism, which is this one, um, that we've been looking at in our home is like the same stuff that I'm teaching here. And so it's kind of fun to get to talk about it with my children while I'm talking about it with you all as well. And so... If you have kids, or even if you don't have kids, and you're just like, I want like the simplest, most distilled version of this, grab one of these. Um, they're out there on one of the, the shelves, that one of the new shelves up there. Or you can grab one of these. It's the Westminster Confession and the Westminster uh, Catechisms as well. But grab these and, and use these for yourself and for your family. Um, and then look at that appendix for kind of where to go for what we're talking about. But... With all that out of the way, let's jump in. Um, so if you look at your notes for week three, so covenant of grace. So first thing, what it, when we say covenant of grace, what are we talking about? What is this thing? So Westminster Shorter Catechism, answer 20 says, God having, out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life. So that, I want to say clause, but multiple clauses there. Is, is the covenant of, of redemption, right? That's, that's the eternal pact within the Godhead that's being referenced there. So God having done that, he did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver those, his elect, out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. And so it's, it's rooted in that eternal covenant of redemption with the Trinity and then historically, it follows the covenant of works. So when God made Adam, he entered into a covenant of works. So this kind of follows that. Okay, R.C. Sproul says the covenant of grace, far from destroying the covenant of works, actually makes it possible for the covenant of works to be fulfilled. What is so gracious about the covenant of grace is that God accepts Christ's obedience to the covenant of works in our place. Right, so this is one of the points I made last week and already this morning that the covenant of works continues to be in force. Right, that God still requires perfect obedience. Right, like God didn't just say, ah, "I don't care about obedience anymore. I'll just kind of accept, you know, the best twenty percent." Everybody else, you know, that's not what God did. He, he still requires perfect obedience. So perfect obedience is required. Jesus fulfills that, and so Jesus fulfills the covenant of works. And in that extends to us the covenant of grace. 
Okay, that, that's one way that you can begin to see that relationship. If you remember from week one, uh, Spurgeon said that basically if you understand the difference in the relationship between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, you, you know a lot. And that's what he's getting at, that Jesus fulfills God's perfect, his requirement of perfect obedience and extends saving grace to us. Okay, so two ideas that um, we need to see um, and then we're going to walk through this through the Bible. But um, two ideas. One is unity and the other is progression. So one, unity. So there, there's one covenant of grace. There's not multiple covenants of grace. There's not multiple ways that God saves people. There's one way, one path. It's the same thing from cover to cover in the Bible. So o, o. Palmer Robertson says this, The covenant structure of Scripture manifests a marvelous unity. God, in binding a people to himself, never changes. For this reason, the covenants of God relate organically to one another. From Adam to Christ, a unity of covenantal administration characterizes the history of God's dealing with his people. And I really appreciate how Palmer Robertson connects God's one way of saving to God's one character. God doesn't change, and so his method, his way of relating to us and saving us doesn't change. He doesn't change that. It's the same across Time. So there's unity in this, but there's also progression. Okay, so the one covenant of grace is manifested throughout redemptive history, marking the major redemptive epics. So each administration does not represent a separate covenant. It's an unfolding or a blooming of the one covenant of grace that's fulfilled in Jesus. So you can think about as we walk through these different administrations of the covenant of grace, you'll see distinctions. Right, so what God says to Abram is a little bit different than what he says to David. But they're not separate. They're just kind of different stages of the blooming of the one flower of the covenant of grace. So there's distinction, but not separation. What God's doing through Moses is not totally different than what he does with Adam in the garden. And so um, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time, but I, I will at least mention um, covenant theology is a way of understanding all of Scripture, and we, we, we see it that this is what Scripture itself teaches. Um, there's another view, or there are multiple views, but the most common one out there is dispensationalism. Right? This would be something that, um, it's kind of the, the, the normative one for most of American uh, churches. They're going to see everything that I'm talking about today very differently <laughs> than how I'm going to teach it today and how I think Scripture actually presents it. Um, I don't want to this isn't a class on dispensationalism, so we're not going to go there. But, Ian, this is one of those, if you want to have lunch one day and talk about it, we'll do that. Um, but let's, let's walk through this. What we're going to do is we're going to see this one covenant of grace from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David and then to the new covenant with Jesus. Okay, so we're going to walk through each of these different key figures. And so the first one, um, these all have funny names because they, they add an IC to them. So Adamic. Uh, or Adam's covenant, the covenant with Adam. This is known as the Proto-Evangelium. And so that just means proto, first, and then evangelium, think of evangelism, that's the gospel. So this is the first gospel. We see the gospel preached first in Genesis 3. And so Adam and Eve fall, they sin, they rebel against God and say, no, we want to do our own thing rather than what you did. They, they break the covenant of works, and then God issues um, punishments for that. Well, in the midst of that, in 3.15, God curses the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And 
And thinking about this verse, I always like to try, like try to put yourself in their shoes. Or I guess they didn't have shoes, but try to put yourself where they're standing. Um, that you just you just broke everything. Like everything is different because of what you just did. You, you now are ashamed and fearful and blaming one another. Everything's messed up because of your sin. And, and, and you receive punishments for that. But then also you, you hear this word from the Lord where he says, this serpent who introduced this in the garden, I'm going to take care of him one day. Like th- That's part of what Adam and Eve hear, is that his head is going to be crushed, and it's going to be crushed by an offspring who will come from you. And so they get to hear this promise from God. So Davis Morgan says this, This passage is the first announcement of the covenant of grace. All of God's saving covenants in Scripture flow out of this and unfold the beauty of this core promise that God will voluntarily rescue sinners who deserve nothing but covenant curse and that He will attain victory over Satan by the sacrificial victory of the seed of the woman. So, beautiful summary of that. And so we see it first with Adam. And again, this is just kind of like the, the seed has been planted and like there's just like a little tiny sprout. Like you don't see a whole lot in Genesis 3.15, but you see a little bit. Okay, we get to Noah, the Noahic covenant. And really what we see in Noah is he's a new Adam and there's a new creation. So if you think about Genesis, chapter 3 is the fall, right? And then chapter 4, a brother murders a brother. So like you go from fall to like just this massive sin of murdering your brother, Right, and even think about what 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 it was God's blessing and command to Adam and Eve was be fruitful, multiply. So, and the, the consequence of the sin is now one of your offspring actually just murdered the other one, um, and then he's banished. So, um, then you get to chapter five. Chapter five is uh, the, the chapter that said, "And this dude lived for this long," and it's really fascinating. You're like, "How did they live that long?" But the the repetition in that chapter is he lived this long and he died. He lived this long, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. So it's just this drum that is being beat that on this side of the, the fall, everybody is dying. Death has set in. Okay, And then we get to chapter 6 to 8, and that's Noah's story. In chapter 6, we see that the earth is, is absolutely, totally corrupt. Right? They're, 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 man only thinks evil thoughts all the time. That's how God describes it. And so he is going to judge the world with a flood. That happens, and then in chapter 9, we get the Noahic covenant. And so you have, you have this in your notes here. In Genesis 9, God says, I established my covenant with you, Noah, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And he goes on, when I bring clouds over the earth, And the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So think about this covenant. Who is in this covenant? Well, God specifies. He says it's between me and you, Noah, and your offspring. So Everybody, right? Because everybody can trace back to Noah. So all people, and he even says it's between every living creature. So, so living creatures experience the punishment of the corruption of man, right? Well, we are to be the stewards who have dominion over the earth. And so when we mess it up, everybody else gets the, or everything else gets to receive the consequence. That's what happens in the flood. So the covenant's with everybody. 
What's the promise? God promises preservation. He promises not to destroy everyone again with a flood. So there's, there's this idea of preservation. If you think about in the, in the story, like in chapter 6 of Genesis, so 3 is the fall, chapter 6, the world is so bad, God has to wipe everything out. Like th- This could have been a very quick story. But God says, I- I'm going to extend a preserving grace to the world Right? I'm not going to destroy by the flood. Third, there's a sign with this covenant. Covenants always have signs with them. We've not gotten into that yet, but covenants have signs. There's, there are visible symbols that represent the covenant. Here, it's the rainbow. Right, But notice what God says back in uh, kind of the end of the quote that you have it there. I have set my bow in the cloud. Right? Some of you have seen this before. Some of you haven't. But like the rainbow is a, a bow, like a bow and arrow. Like It's shaped like a bow from a bow and arrow. It's not just... Like, I don't know. I remember first time I was like, why on earth do we call it a rainbow? It doesn't make any sense. I get the rain part, but it's a rainbow because it's the shape of a bow and arrow. And so God sets his bow and says, I'm not going to use this to punish the world and wipe you out with a flood again. Like, I'm not going to shoot my arrow at you to totally destroy you. Instead, I'm going to set it here to the side. And notice it even says, who, who is the sign for? Is it for us or is it for God? He actually says it's for him. Like he says, when I see this sign, I will remember my covenant promises and I will not destroy you. Now, the fact that he's doing it and telling us about it, it it's also for us. Like, <laughs> but it's, he says it's for him. And so just an encouragement. Whenever you see a rainbow, enjoy it. They're beautiful. They're fun. We saw one yesterday, Friday. Um, but like, actually go back and think about God's promises. Think about that this is God's faithfulness on display whenever you see that. Last thing, how does this connect to the covenant of grace? What we see in this is that there's common grace for all. There's a delaying of God's judgment, which enables the story of redemption. Right? If you think about how quick we went from chapter 3 to chapter 6, where God had to destroy the whole world, if God doesn't do something to preserve and have patience upon this world, there's going to be no timeline for His story of redemption to take place. Right? Like there's, we're talking about thousands of years that He has planned until Jesus gets here. So he's going to preserve and delay and be patient. Okay, that's the Noahic covenant. Third, let's go to the the Abrahamic. So in chapter 12, Abraham is called and given promises. In chapter 15, we have a covenant ceremony. In chapter 17, we have a covenant sign. So chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of idolatry and says, I'm going to use you to bless all nations. I'm going to give you a bunch of people. A big family, I'm going to give you a land. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. If someone honors you, they're going to be honored. If someone, uh, if someone dishonors you, they're going to be dishonored. If someone honors you, they're going to be honored. Okay, so Genesis 15, that's, that's the calling of Abraham. Genesis 15 is the ceremony. So at the beginning of that chapter, God says to Abraham, because Abraham's struggling, he's doubting a little bit. God says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so we can see Romans 4, Galatians 3 make a big deal about this. But Paul in those chapters is making the claim that Abraham was saved by faith way back then. It's not different then than it is now. And so this idea of of being saved or counted as righteous through belief, like it's made explicit in Genesis 15. We haven't seen that in anything prior to this, right? With Noah, with Adam, we haven't seen this idea. So this is kind of a new leaf or a new petal that's, that's blooming here with the Abrahamic. After this, half over against the other. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So we're told in the text that this is a covenant. This is God making a covenant. But we need to ask why. Like, what's going on? Because I'm guessing that nobody in this room has ever taken these animals and cut them in half and laid them apart and walked through them, right? That this isn't something normal for us. This isn't something in our culture. But in the ancient Near East, this was very familiar. Like everybody reading this would have known exactly what's taking place here, that this is a covenant-making ceremony. And so what would happen is you'd have a king and then a lower king, kind of somebody that he had conquered, and they would do this ceremony, and then they would both walk through that saying, if, if I break this covenant, may what's happened to these animals happen to me. Right? So this is a, a covenant in blood. You're, you're, you're putting your life on the line, and, and the ceremony visualizes that. And so in this covenant, though, Abram does this work. He does what God commands. He, he puts these animals there, but then Abram never walks through. Right? When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between. So fire and smoke in Scripture almost always reveal the presence of God. Right? When you get to Mount Sinai, it's fire, it's smoke. Right? When you get to Pentecost, it's, it's uh, tongues of fire, right? Because God has come down. When, when Moses goes up on the mountain and he meets with God and he's in a bush, it's on fire. So the, these symbols that go through this are symbols of God himself. And so why? Like what is going on? Well, God is telling Abram that I, God, am going to fulfill this covenant. And if, if this covenant is broken, whose life is on the line? God's. Like he's beginning to show us that he's the one who's going to fulfill this rather than Abram. Because we know that Abram, like, like Adam before him, is going to fail. Like the, we know this because that's humanity. But God is showing us with a visible sign that he, in two parties here, is walking through. He's putting it upon himself. Because that's, that's the covenant. Chapter 17, we get to the covenant sign. God said to Abraham, Behold, my covenant's with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, so we see, um, again, this everlasting nature of this. We see the Emmanuel principle there. Okay, he goes on. As for you, Abraham, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So pause. If you look down at the next question, it said, is circumcision the covenant or is it the sign? Because right here, God just said, this is the covenant that you're going to keep throughout your generations. Have every male circumcised. But before this, God said, it's more about obedience, being blameless and walking with him. We go on. It says, uh, you'll be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Okay, So God here, in, in two, direct, two uh, sentences right after each other, says circumcision is the covenant, but then he says circumcision is the sign of the covenant. And so which is it? Well, yes. God says it's both, but his point is that the, it's, it's, it's ultimately it is the sign of the covenant, but it's the sign of the covenant that embodies the whole thing. And so you can say it shorthand that it is the covenant. Even to the point that after this, he says, any 
uncircumcised male who's not circumcised will be cut off. He's broken my covenant. So it's, it's a big deal to not have your son circumcised for Abraham. Right? Just, if, this is interesting. Go read Exodus 4, 18 to 26. Moses is on his way back to the land to rescue God's people. And then God comes in the middle of the night and almost kills. It's, you gotta interpret. It's either him or his son because he's not circumcised. So like, to not be circumcised is to not fulfill the covenant which brings about death. Okay. Uh, third question under this. How does this physical sign of the covenant connect to the promise of the, of the covenant? The, the centrality of the promises that God made to Abraham is that many people will come from you. Like you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations. Abraham's doubts, because like it takes lots of years for God to actually begin to do this. Abraham's doubts are about, are you really going to do this? Because I don't have a son yet. And then even at one point, it was like, well, you know, I've got another way of having a son, and I kind of take this in my own hands, and we'll have a son through Hagar. God says, no, that's, that's not how I'm doing this. You're going to have a son by promise, not by your own work. And so to have, it, have circumcision as the sign actually connects to the, the promise that God has given. God didn't just make this up randomly. He's actually reiterating to Abraham and to all of his children, I'm the one who's doing this. And you'll remember this throughout your generations. A fourth, circumcision confirms membership in the external covenant community. So to have this covenant sign confirms that you belong to the covenant community. right? If you, if you go on and read this, Isaac gets circumcised. That makes sense. He's the child of the promise, but so does Ishmael. And Ishmael's not in, in the chosen line. And so he receives the covenant sign, even though he's not going to receive all the covenant promises. So the sign... It, it, it confirms membership in the external community. Finally, what does this symbolize? Well, you can go look at Deuteronomy 10.16, Jeremiah 4.4, 4, and then Romans 2.28-29. Um, Deuteronomy 10.16, Jeremiah 4.4, 4, Romans 2.28-29. That throughout the scriptures we see that circumcision, it, it, it's, it's showing us a need for regeneration. It's showing us a need for cleansing, for being made new. De- Deuteronomy talks about that we need a circumcision of the heart. Like this, this physical circumcision is meant to symbolize that, that we meet, need to be made new. We need a, a circumcision that goes deep down in our hearts. And if we don't have that, we get cut off. Right? So it, it, it symbolizes all of that for them. This is going to be the hardest week to get through all this stuff. So we'll see what we... It's 1041. We'll see. Next one, Mosaic. Okay, Mosaic covenant. So we have Abraham. He has Isaac. Then you have Jacob. Then you have the 12 sons. Those 12 sons eventually make it into Egypt, where eventually they become enslaved. And then at the beginning of Exodus, God says, I'm going to rescue my people because they're enslaved and oppressed. Right? If you look at Exodus 2 that's there, um, the people groan, they cry out. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their growing, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. So all of Exodus, everything that's going to happen with Moses, is based upon God's covenant promises through Abraham. That's the foundation. right? Everything He told Abraham and covenanted with him is the foundation for everything that happens with Moses. Okay, so God rescues His people. And eventually they make it back to, they make it to Mount Sinai where they're going to meet with God. In Genesis 19, or Exodus 19, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
And then he talks about the need for them to obey, that they, they must obey what God is going to give them. And then after, Genesis, after Exodus 19 is Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. So God rescues them, says, you've got to keep my covenant, and then I'm going to give you these Ten Commandments. Right? And then he's going to spell that out even further. Uh, but but it's, it's gracious rescue, and then it's a call to obedience. Exodus 24, God actually, we have a covenant ceremony here. Uh, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace, sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, put it in the basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what we see in the Mosaic covenant is an emphasis on law and obedience, right? Obedience is absolutely required. But I want to point out that that's not new, right? Obedience has always been required. Even if you go back to to Abraham, it's very easy to see this. God says, I'm going to do all this, but you're to be blameless. You're to obey me. You're to walk with me. So this, this call to obedience isn't new, but it's, it's kind of focused on or highlighted in a, in a unique way with Moses. But not only do you see obedience highlighted, you also see this idea of um, being sprinkled with blood, which is going to become very important when you get to the book of Hebrews. So the people are covered with the blood of the covenant. They're sanctified, set apart, consecrated to the Lord by the blood of the covenant. That's going to have massive impact later. And so, I'll just let you know, and this could be another lunch conversation if you want. Some people would claim that the Mosaic Covenant is not a covenant of grace. They actually see it as a covenant of works. I think the majority of people do see it as a covenant of grace. That's that's where I land with it. Even though there's an emphasis on obedience, it still has a foundation as a covenant of grace. God rescued them because of His promises to Abraham. Right? God's people didn't do anything to deserve that rescue. God rescues them, but he, then he emphasizes you must be obedient. But, but it's, the obedience comes once they're in relationship with God. Right? He doesn't say, hey, here's the Ten Commandments, and if you do well enough, I'm going to rescue you and take you as my people. He just says, I'm going to take you as my people, and then I'm going to give you these, and you, you've got to follow this. Like This is required of you. There will be punishment if not, but you're already my people. I've already rescued you. Okay, so there's conditions. Um, the basis, we've already talked about that. Uh, context is gracious redemption. And you can think about fulfillment too. Um, Peter quotes Exodus 19.6 in chapter 2, and he applies it to New Testament Christians. So like his application of this to you and me, I think, again, speaks to it being a covenant of grace. Um, you can think about after this that in Leviticus, you could summarize it as living in covenant with God, that all of life is worship, all of it needs to be cleansed. Numbers is about walking in the wilderness in covenant with God. What that looks like in Deuteronomy is all about covenant renewal. Uh, we got five minutes. I think we're going to make it. Last part here is Davidic. So he's the next major player. The next major covenant is David. He is the chosen and anointed king of God's people. And so right, th- this is some to us because it's not that long ago we were in Samuel, but in 1 Samuel, God's people say, hey, we want a king like all the nations have. And then God's like, well, you, you know, it's not going to work out well. But here's Saul, and they choose Saul, and Saul's just a miserable king for them. And then eventually, God's chosen king, God's anointed king, 
the, the king after his own heart is David. He is anointed as king, and he's the, the one for God's people who receives the covenant promises. You're good. It's good when it's your own kid, right? Um, so, 2 Samuel 7, this is where God makes covenant with him. He's, he's, so David comes to, to God and he says, hey, I want to build a temple for you because you've just had this tabernacle. But like, wouldn't it be great if you had a permanent house for you, God? And God says, hold on. This is, hold on, your, your, your son's going to do that. But let me tell you what I'm going to do. So he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And you can go look at Psalm 89, 3 to 4 is where that references this. But God promises David that he's going to have perpetual offspring on the throne. The Davidic throne has been established at this point by God's covenant with him. And so think about how this uh, we see the idea of the, the unity here of the one covenant of grace, right? We've seen the idea of offspring and land, and that's especially emphasized with Abraham. And think about here uh, in verses 9 to 11, God tells uh, David that the people are going to be planted in the land. They'll be protected from enemies and they'll, they'll be blessed with peace through the king. Like none of these promises to David as king, don't, they don't make any sense if they don't have a land and a people. So the, the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. Uh, the Emmanuel principle, God says that he's going to be a father to the king. He will be his son. Right? That echoes that idea. Uh, the idea of righteous rule goes back to Deuteronomy 17, that the king is to know and rule by God's law. Uh, we also see the emphasis on God's activity here. Right? David wanted to do something for God, and God said, hold on, I'm going to tell you all that I'm going to do for you, and you're going to have a son on the throne forever, like absolutely forever. And then that last point, forever. So, well, I need like 10 more minutes and I just don't have it. So if, as you, if you want to talk more, just come talk to me. But Davis Morgan, his summary of this is absolutely very helpful. So I'm going to read this. So at this point, God's redemption plan has progressed from the promise of the seed of the servant, serpent through the preservation under Noah, through the promises of a land and a people to Abraham, in the rise of a nation with God's law and a conquest of the promised land under Moses. Now to the point that all of the covenant reality is subsumed in the promise that David's kingdom in Jerusalem would be established forever. There would always be a Davidic king on the throne in Jerusalem. So that, I mean, that paragraph from, or sentence from him, I guess, it's like a paragraph. He's encapsulating really all that we're talking about today. A couple things that you can think about for implications, um, though I won't get through all these, is one I hope that this bolsters how you see God's grace, even from chapter 3 in Genesis. Right? God did not become gracious when Jesus got here. His graciousness goes from cover to cover. The entirety of Scripture is about His gracious covenantal work among His people. This also helps us see that Scripture is an unfolding story. So these Old Testament stories aren't separate and just kind of like Thing to learn about then they're actually an unfolding of the one story of scripture right there's there's one story and the better we understand these and how they connect the better we'll get it all together um, these also point to the idea that we need more right and you can just think about this with each one right god said to abram you're going to have an offspring who's going to crush the head of the serpent we haven't met him yet 
We're still waiting. Like, who's going to finally crush this serpent? Because he's still here. He's still wreaking havoc upon us. We're still experiencing all of this. But you tell us there's a son who's going to come for that. With Noah, right, God's judgment is postponed. That's good. Thank you, God, for delaying that and having patience. But, like, how long will this last? Like, when is when will you bring about the fullness of your judgment? Abrahamic. Right, The people eventually get exiled from the land. And so all of the promises to Abraham are now in question. Like We're not in the land anymore. We don't have the security of being in God's place. Right, Even the idea of circumcision. We see that circumcision of the flesh isn't quite enough. It's, it's commanded, it's good, but we need a circumcision of the heart. Mosaic, right? Who, who will fulfill this law perfectly? Who's going to actually complete all that's required? And then we can even think about, and this gets into next week, but... The, the New Covenant prophecies talk about we don't just need a law written on stones, we need a law written on our hearts. Right? All of that connects to the Mosaic Covenant. And finally, the Davidic says that there's going to be a son of David on the throne, but then there's a time when there is no throne, and there is no son of David on the throne, and the people are in exile, and we ask, what about all of God's promises? And there's so much in the, in the last part of the Old Testament that deals with that, of what about your promises, God? Have you forgotten us? Have you forgotten your promises? But all of this drives us forward into the New Covenant. And so next week we're going to look at the New Covenant. And we'll, we'll start with New Covenant prophecies, which is the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Jeremiah mostly. And then we'll look at Jesus and see how does Jesus fulfill all of this. Okay? Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks uh, that you've given us all of your word. Help us to understand it, believe it, and apply it in our lives. We pray for your help in that. In Christ's name, amen.